Oh, so good to be with you guys across all of our campuses. Thanks, OC211. I'm going to be with you here in a few minutes uh, as we get to reveal to you guys what's happening on your campuses as part of the Because Initiative. Uh, thanks for worshiping with us of all the places you could choose to worship. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. We're walking through Romans, and I read a blog post I want to set up. Guy, I don't know. His name's Mike Bird. I don't know him. But he's a, he's a young pastor that was like recently saved, this is a few years ago, and out of his salvation came a calling uh, into ministry. But he writes, and I think this is many people's experience, his paragraph. He writes his paragraph, and it's going to set up what I want to do today as we continue walking through Romans 3. So Mike Bird, if you're in the room, thank you for writing this. But I thought it was good. If not, you're like, I know a Mike Bird. Maybe not this guy. But here we go. He goes, in my short time as a follower of Jesus... I've had people tell me that in order to be saved, pause, that's the first thing that's good, right? In order to be saved, this has to be true. In order to be saved, I need to speak in tongues, partake of some sacrament, only read the King James Bible, can I get a witness, subscribe to a certain confession, believe in, the di believe in this diagram of the end times, jump through a dozen other hoops, that seem to serve the purpose of validating the rantings of some lunatic with an opinion and a desperate desire to force it on others. But here's what he says. Fortunately for me, is Romans chapter 3. I was discipled in a church where the pastor was committed to biblical preaching, so I never got suckered into a Jesus plus stairway to salvation. We live in a confused and cluttered culture. That's where we're living at. And what I find is the confusion and the clutter moves its way into the church. And there's many people that have misunderstandings or misconceptions, and we make a lot of assumptions about what it means to have relationship with God. We make assumptions about the gospel, what it means to have relationship with God. One of the ways we want to serve you best is, here's what I can promise, not a perfect church, but we will be crystal clear at what it means to have a relationship with God that comes through Christ and Christ alone. And here's the reason we are that, because we think the Bible's crystal clear about it. Right? We can disagree about a lot, but when it comes to relationship with God, there's not a lot that's left out once it comes to Scripture. So if you got your Bibles, Romans 3, right? Romans 3. Paul writes, if you haven't noticed, Paul's a smart guy. Paul writes like a lawyer building a case. If you read Romans, it's like a lawyer building a case, a case for Christ, and he anticipates the questions people are going to ask before they ask. And it serves really well. In fact, the first hundred years of Harvard Law School, the first hundred years of Harvard Law School, go fact check me on this, law students were given Romans to study. Not to convince them of Jesus, but because the argument is so meticulous. It's so logical what he lays out in a school of ideas, what it means to have a relationship with God, and why the gospel is the hope. So Paul will answer questions like this along the way. Why do Christians make such a big deal about Jesus? Like back then, this guy from Nazareth, this carpenter from Nazareth, this Messiah saying he's from Nazareth, this Jewish carpenter, or now, why does a guy who was a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago have to know, what does he have to know, do with knowing God today? All right, what is that all about? All right, why, like I get wanting to connect with the divine, but why Jesus? Somebody goes, whoa, ooh, 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 the cross, that's why, the cross. Okay, but let's get to the cross. Let's play devil's advocate here. What's up with the cross? That's a pretty brutal scene. What kind of loving God would murder his son? 
or allow his son to be murdered. Like, that's the center of y'all's belief. That's kind of weird, right? And, and, and while we're talking about that, why do Christians believe Jesus is the only way? Like, I'm down with he's the Like, he is a way, but the only way? Come on, man. Right? Here's one. Why can't we just all know God in our own way? If somebody were to ask you that, what would you say? Like, you've probably been asked a question, like, why can't we just know God? And, well, I just know what works for me. And I just know what works for me and my family. Listen, I'm smiling. I love you. Bad answer. <laughs> not a biblically faithful. It's a very American answer. But it's not biblically faithful. Oh, 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 Jason, I know. You used last week, John 14. What was that series in August? I forgot what you said last week, but you said something about, oh, Jesus said he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Good, you remember, right? But here's the thing. That was Jesus' declaration. Here's the beauty. Romans 3 is the explanation for why he is the only way, the truth, and the life. So Romans 3, you don't have to stand because I'm going to walk you through the passage. You'd be standing and sitting a lot. So Romans 3, we're going to pick up about verse 10. Here's what it says. No one is righteous, no, not one, understands. No one seeks for God. Paul's saying, born with a Jewish heritage, born Greek, born religious or irreligious, we're all born outside a relationship with God. Nobody on their own is righteous. It's our condition. Like you think, like it's, you're born into the condition of this. What do you mean? Anybody got kids two or under in the room? Raise your hand. Two or under in the room. You didn't teach your kid as wonderful as she or he is, and they are wonderful. We thank you for them, right? You didn't teach them to throw a fit. They knew how. You never said, here's how to make mom and dad really embarrassed. You just start doing this, yelling and screaming and all that. No, you didn't have to do that. They knew it, right? Why? It's a condition. That's what Paul's saying. All of us have turned aside. Right? Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're turned inwards. We'll come back to that. Their throat is an open grave. Right? They use their tongues to deceive. What's an open grave? Why do we close graves? Because bodies rot and decompose. Paul is saying from their heart, a rotten heart, comes awful words. Right? The venom of asps. Let's make sure to pronounce that right. Right? The venom. <laughs> I worked on this all weekend. The venom. Of asps, there he goes, <laughs> is under their lips. What do you mean? It's a poisonous snake in Egypt, right? That's what he's talking about. They're awful. It keeps going. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sin, we are worse off than we think we are. Salvation in Christ is better than most people could ever consider. Paul is saying, sin is greater, salvation is worse. The first three chapters, that's what he's building. So I want to make sure this is our faith. This is what we believe, right? These next few uh, verses is everything. Put this down if you're taking notes. Sin is the condition of humanity separated from relationship with God. It means to miss the mark, to fall short. It's what, it's what, we're fallen, we're broken, we're imperfect. What is the stain of that? That is sin. Now make sure you put this down if you're following with us. Make sure to clarify. Sin 
is more than just bad behavior on a bad day or poor choices in one wrong moment. That's the way we think of it. It's an activity, not a condition. Right? So if you're taking that down, it's more than we are guilty needing right, forgiveness. The Bible talks about sin more as like we are slaves needing freedom. And I know slavery is an ugly word, but the Bible uses it because to describe the condition of we are under the power of something we can't free ourselves from. Like condition. How many of you remember the movie Finding Nemo, the old Disney movie Finding Nemo? Can I get a witness in the room? Some of you, everybody who had a kid or grandkid, you know Finding Nemo. Do you remember what the seagulls did all the time? And y'all are the first audience that got this. I don't even know if that means you guys are way away from Jesus or you actually got kids. I don't know. Everybody else I've looked at said that and they're like, mine, but here's it, mine, 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 mine. That, that is, that's a condition of sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says sin turns us in on ourselves. My wants, my desires, my emotions, my rights, my thoughts, my feelings, my choices, me, 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 me. It's a condition that stains everything. My friend, Pastor Joby Martin, it's not in your notes, but I like, here's the way he defines it. He goes, what the Bible teaches is we're not all equal sinners, but we are all sinners equally. That's really good that you get this, because we love playing the moral comparison game in our head. We do. We've been talking about that the last few weeks, the moral comparison game. And if you want to look out to compare yourself morally to somebody, you can do that. You can always find a dude with a worse rap sheet, with a worse public record than you. No doubt you can find that, but here's the thing, lean in. But that don't mean you don't have your own junk. Like, we never play the moral comparison game with Billy Graham. We never think, there's the standard Billy Graham. You know what we do? There's a mugshot on the nightly news, and we go, well, I'm not him. We see some documentary on Netflix about a rich, wealthy guy who has his whole family murdered, and we're like, we're doing all right. <laughs> right? That's what we think. And if you think about it with us, lean in right here. It's not even that we let down God's standards, that we miss the mark. Everybody in this room would say that we're imperfect. We know we miss the mark. We don't even keep up our own standards. Let's just own our depravity for a second. What do you mean? How many times have you thought to yourself or looked in the mirror and said, I'm never going to say that again? I'll never act like that again. I would never do that again. I'll never drink that again. I'll never take that pill again. I'll never, I'll never, I'll never. Isn't it funny how never happens really fast again? We don't even hold up our own standards, right? Ephesians said that we are dead in our sins. This is what Paul says, dead in our sins. And I don't know a ton. But I know there's not different levels of dead. There's not dead, deader, and deadest. There's just dead. Right? Paul says it's a condition. But then I want you to keep reading because here's where he begins to push because his is what's in most of our thinking. Right? If you get raised Catholic, raised with some religious roots, I have family that's that, right? This is where most of us lean. Okay, we got a problem, so here's what needs to happen. Here's what Paul keeps going. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. So we know we fall short. God's word's written on our heart. We know right and wrong, whether we'll admit it or not. This is so big. Here it is. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Everybody lean in. This is where Christianity is set apart from every other belief system in the world, right here on that line. Every other belief system, basically, somewhere, if you want to be made right with God, do this, act this way, do this long enough with a right enough heart, and you can be made right with God. And here's what Paul said. There is no human action that's going to justify you before God. None. Right? In his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we know we're fallen, right? We know we're fallen. Put this down. The law, church, put this down. The law diagnoses our condition, but it doesn't have the power to cure it. This is the Christian belief. This is our theology. It's amazing to me that we're more in tune, even like in our culture right now. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, ooh. And we're in tune with that. Listen to me. I'm smiling, and people can't articulate what they believe. Jesus works for me. It's a bad answer. It's not a good answer. And we live in a world with multiple ideas where people's faith is weak, not because they don't feel it, it's because they don't know it. Right? Old Testament, all the time, we hear the law, we're going, ooh, the law. Right? But in the Old Testament, Paul, uh, David talked about the law as beautiful. As good, all through the Psalms. His law is beautiful, it's good, it's righteous, it's holy. I meditate on it day and night. He would talk about it's honey on my lips. For us in America, law, authority, mm-mm. I don't need that. Right? We're free. That's kind of the way we think. Let me illustrate this way how the law works. My grandmother lives lived in Decula, Georgia, right next to Decula High School, right? Her red brick house is still there. And behind her house, about a quarter of a mile behind her house, were railroad tracks, the same railroad tracks that run through Winder. Go through Decula, right? And back there, there was always, well, here's what we knew. She'd, we'd always go back there, me and my brother, and play. There were a little strip mall, well, strip mall. It was like a, a, one little store back there, okay, that we'd go back and hang out about. But here's the thing with train tracks. The tracks can give you direction, but the train takes you to the destination. Tracks give you the direction, but they do not get you to the destination. There is a train. How many of you have kids that broke something, sprained something? You take them to get an x-ray. That x-ray tells you there's something broken. That x-ray doesn't fix what's broken. A CT scan, an MRI scan will show you there's a tumor. We'll show you there's mass. We'll show you there's cancer. Let me tell you what it won't do. Cure that cancer. The law shows us the beauty of God and the brokenness in us, but it doesn't bring the two together. It's a gift of grace. God gives us his way, his standards, not because he wants to make us right with that, because he wants, to see, wants us to see our brokenness, our brokenness. And so let's keep moving. And now this next chapter, or excuse me, next chapter, next couple of verses are probably the most important paragraph in all the Bible. Martin Luther said it's the hinge point of all of Scripture. Romans 3, 21 through. So I can't save myself by doing good. That's what most people think. I can't save myself by doing good and everybody's broken. We all feel it. We all sense it. Then what's the answer? Here's where Paul begins to lay it out. But now the righteousness of God, remember what righteousness means. We're right standing with God. We've been made right with God. If you're righteous, you've been seen as good or right. God looks at you and goes, yes. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It means the law points us to the need for a Savior but can't save us, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the best news possible for all who believe. For there is no distinction. If you were raised in a Baptist church, you know this verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? There were two verses in a Baptist church. John 3.16, Romans 3.23. Right? That were the two. You had it drilled into you. And we're all justified by his grace as a gift through what? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Let's keep going. It gets a little wordy. I'm going to come back and explain it to you. Whom God put forward is a propitiation. I'll explain that. And I'm like, I don't know that word. Hold on. By his blood, because it's a beautiful word. To be received by what? By living good. No, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, again, some of you are like, whoo, this is big. Hold on, I'm going to explain it. He had passed over former sins, right? It was to show righteousness at the present time that we could be made right right now through Christ so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So let me explain. There's three big words. Let me say this to you. I love you. It's an awesome church. We live in a time where most people cannot articulate what they believe. They just go, many people in church is just like, yeah, man, Jesus. Really? You look at our culture. I don't mean, you know, Jesus this is the center of our faith. If you say you're a believer in Jesus, then you're staking your life on the next 10 minutes. This is everything. And there's three big words. Go back to my Baptist church roots. If you were ever raised in this thing called Sunday school, some of you are like, that doesn't sound fun. It was awesome, right? Have you ever seen called Sunday school? Words like this came up all the time. Here's the three words. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. These two words you pretty much know. This word you're like, I got no clue. But let's say them together on the count of three. These three words, justification, redemption, propitiation. I skipped three. Y'all went with me, so that's good, okay? Now, I want to explain this to you. This is so big. This is the center of our belief. If you're taking notes, let me explain it to you. Justification. You use the word justified, right? Here's what justification means. It's a declaration of righteousness. You are declared that you've been made right with God. I'm going to let you take that for a second. You want, this is going to be one of those, if you don't take notes, you still want to get a screenshot, but hold on a second. This is our faith. A declaration of righteousness. But here's the thing, and this is the best new possible, as you lean in. On the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Not in your own efforts. You are justified not because you think you're a good person or try to do good things or you're better than the guy down the road. You're ba based on Jesus and what he did on the cross. Justification is not a process, it's an act. It is not a process whereby we become righteous. It's a declaration where we are pronounced righteous. What do you mean? justification, making you right with God is something God does, not man. So let's say I get accused of a crime and taken to jail. First of all, it's been great being your pastor, right? 
Whatever they say about me about Facebook, y'all take up for me, okay? Whatever happens out there, then hopefully that didn't happen. But let's say that happened. Jury finds me innocent. Judge declares I'm innocent. At once, my declaration of innocence is given to me. I've been justified by declaration. There is not a seven-step process where I'm being justified. There's not a class I take to be justified. If you are found innocent, you are declared just, or you're declared, right? You've been made, you've been justified. Our righteousness, listen to me, lean in. Our right standing with God is based on what Christ did. On the cross, he was perfect. He took our record and we got his. We were justified. So in the Old Testament, where we get kind of bogged down, you'll see this. Centuries before Jesus, a Jewish family would take a lamb and lay it on the altar at the temple. We get bogged down. I don't understand this. Right, this is the hard part of the Old Testament sometimes. They would lay their hands on a lamb, an unblemished, spotless lamb. They would confess their sins, then they would cut the throat of the lamb. It was a sacrifice for their sins. They understood the weight of their sins, and because they sacrificed this lamb, they walked away free. It was foreshadowing. So on the cross, Jesus became our sin so that when we, by faith, place our hand of trust, say, I trust in Jesus, listen to me, our sin becomes, uh, is placed on him, and his righteousness becomes ours. So let me illustrate this real, real simply. On the cross, here's what we believe. On the cross, if you got it around your necklace, on the cross, the song we sing, on the cross, Jesus became the liar. On the cross, Jesus became the thief. On the cross, Jesus became the adulterer. On the cross, Jesus became the husband that neglected his family time and time again. On the cross, Jesus became the man or woman who wrecked somebody else's marriage. On the cross, Jesus became the teenager that lies to her parents again and again. On the cross, Jesus became the hypocrite that lives a double life. He became the proud. He became the selfish. He became the apathetic. He became those things and he died for them so that you and I, by trusting in him, would be innocent of them. What's that called? Justified. Justified. We are justified by his grace. And here's the next word. As a gift. Not something we can do. Redemption. This is how it happens. Redemption means to buy something back. This is our faith. This is everything. To buy something back, to bring it back from destruction, to restore it. That's what redemption means. So Paul says it's by grace because on the cross, Jesus was redeeming us. It was an act of redemption. So right before Jesus died, John 19, he says a word on the cross. And the word, you can look in your Bible, is tetelestai. Tetelestai. What does tetelestai mean? It is, okay, finished. It's a banking term. It is done. There are receipts from first century archaeologists. It's a banking term, right? There are receipts from first century archaeologists that find a ledger or a book where there were debts that were owed, and when somebody paid their debt, 
there was a stamp put across their debt, and that stamp said to Telestai, meaning it has been paid. Those were the words, the last words Jesus used. Jesus was saying, as he died, what had to be done to restore, to reconcile, to make us right with God had been done. Right? It's been paid. I paid the price for you to bring you back from death for life, from darkness to light, from sin for God. Right? There's nothing left to be done. You are justified by faith and you are redeemed because of the blood that was spilled out for you. Listen to me, church. Here's the craziest thing, and you guys are with me. It cost you and I absolutely nothing because it cost him absolutely everything. It cost you and I nothing, but it cost him everything. But it cost him everything. And then here's the third word. And this is the word that is beautiful, right? It's called propitiation. We don't use the word. You, talk, you know about redemption. You know about justification. You may not use them a lot, but you said the word justified or redeemed. Propitiation means an atoning sacrifice. God poured out the punishment we deserved on Jesus. Propitiation means the satisfying of God's law was upheld. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus met the demands. Now, I love you guys, and this is not you, but this is where modern people in the modern church sometimes gets a little squiggly right here. And I can say, and I'm pastor of a church that we consider a modern church, part of the modern church movement. We get a little squirmy. Not you guys, but churches get a little squirmy on this. And what it means, this is where the word blood, representing the price he paid, comes in. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, died in order to justify you and I to make us right. So, Jason, I just, you know... God's love. I'm just God's love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely God's love. No doubt about it, 100%. And he loves sinners who are far from him and wants to forgive them. God is light. And I, I just like the positive. God is love and God is light. I'm with you. God is light, First John, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is also holy. God is also just. God is also perfect. God is also righteous. And for him just to look the other way because of our sin would mean he is not holy. He is not perfect, and he is not righteous, right? And so God's wrath and God's anger and God's love are not contradictions. Like, we don't talk a lot about God's wrath because it's like, eh. Like, think about it. We don't have a song, God's wrath that was poured out on me. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple old hymns they'll throw it in there. We'll, you'll see it in there. Some like, right, why well, I like him hymns. Well, they don't say it a lot either. Hymns, half the time you don't understand anyway. That's the good stuff, whatever, right? But here's what I'm saying. God's wrath and God's love are not contradictions. They're actually components of one another. This is big. This is teaching right here. God's wrath and God's love aren't contradictions. How can a God of love be a God of wrath? Paul said it. The wrath of God is being revealed. And you think wrath of God, you think the guy you grew up with in your, in your independent church that was sitting there sweating, going, wrath and hell, and you're like, okay, I'll say yes to Jesus. Just relax, bro. Some of you, that's what you think. I get it, man. I grew up, I've been in some of those meetings. And so we think the wrath, mean, bad. But listen to me, wrath and love go hand in hand. 
They're not contradictions. They're components. You know that. Let me say, if you love someone, you really love someone, you hate what's destroying that person. If you love your son and daughter, if you love your best friend, you hate the addiction that's robbing their life. If you love someone, you hate the cancer that's eating away at them. God loves you so much that he sees the sin that's destroying your life and he hates it. He sees the sin that's destroying your purpose and taking you down the road, and he hates it. Church, don't miss this. The cross, and this is where the modern church, sometimes we mess up with our language. The cross was just not God showing us his love for us. Make sure you get that. I love the cross. It's how much God loved us. The cross is more than that. So big that you, he was ta- Jesus was taking the place of our punishment. What are you saying? Everybody lean in right here. It's not that Jesus died for you. It's that he died instead of you. That's the gospel. It's sin had to be punished. A holy God and sin don't jive, don't go together. It's not that he died for you. Yes, but he died instead of you. He took your place. That's the gospel. How can God be both just and justifier? Because that's how Paul ends it. He is both the just and he is the justifier. Here it is, his son, Jesus Christ. His son, Jesus Christ. Now think about it. Let me illustrate it like this. My kids are older now. This is a friend of mine, J.D. Greer, illustrated real, real good one time. And I'm like, I'm using that, so I'm giving him credit. I always give props. Right? I'm going to give this guy credit. Let me, let me illustrate how this works. Last say, my kids are older now, but when they were young, we're walking down the road on the sidewalk. It's a busy road. Right? Walking downtown Winder's a busy road, but we're on the sidewalk and we're safe. My kids are really little. And I look at my kids and I go, hey, do you know how much daddy loves you? How much daddy? How much daddy? You know? And then I just throw myself in oncoming traffic. I look at my kids. How much did daddy love? How much, daddy? How much? I just throw myself into oncoming stress. Listen to me. It was only love if I was accomplishing something. It was only love if I'm protecting them from something. It was only love if I'm preventing them from something. If I just throw myself into traffic and I'm not protecting or preventing or keeping them from harm, let me tell you what that's called. Stupid. Church, Jesus' death would only be loving if it was preventing us from something, if it was keeping us from something. And what it was preventing us from and what it was keeping us from is separated from God for eternity. Judgment was placed on Jesus that should have been placed on us. Jesus' death, church, it shows the power of his compassion, his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. For those who've been raised around it, for those who are new to it. He took my place. He received the punishment I deserve. These three words as we close. Big words. But listen to me. Beautiful. He made me right. I can't. 
because he redeemed me on the cross. His blood was spilled out. He died, right? He took my place, and the wrath of God was satisfied all at the cross. These three big words, let me make it really simple. This is the gospel. This is our faith. The gospel in four simple words is simply this. Jesus in my place. That is the gospel. What is the center of our faith? The teachings of Jesus. Nope. What is the center of our faith? Love. Zero. Nope. You're wrong. What is the center of our faith? Be a good Samaritan. Nope. What is the center of Christianity? Is Christ and the cross. It's Christ and the cross. Jesus lived the life I should have lived. He paid the penalty I should have paid. And I have relationship with him by faith and trust. I lay my hand out and I take my trust off myself and I place it on Jesus. Listen to me, here's the best part. Here's what that means and here's where most people miss it. What that means, if you're in Christ around this room, if you're a person who follows Jesus, like I am in Christ, I'm a believer, raise your hand. Here's what that means if you're in Christ. When God looks at you, if you're a believer, he does not see your sin, he sees his son, your savior. Woo! Come on! Your junk, your filthy mouth, your dark heart, your lying ways, he doesn't see that. You know what he sees? His son, Jesus. His son, Jesus. If you're in Christ, there's nothing you can do that's going to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do that make God love you less. His acceptance and approval are all you need for everlasting joy. It's a brand new identity. That's what the cross is. Like his compassion is seen in the cross. His power is seen in the resurrection. But I'll make sure you get this. Remember my grandma's house I was telling you all about? train tracks right behind it, quarter of a mile, downtown Tequila. Still there to this day. We would go, my brother and I would go out and play. We'd run down there and she would always go, don't mess with the train because the train will win. It's a good wisdom from my grandmother. She's with the Lord. Thank you, Grandma. Right? Don't mess, <laughs> don't mess with the train. train's going to win. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Everybody lean in as we close. I don't care if you're Catholic roots, Baptist roots, no roots, Pentecostal roots. I'm not sure where I'm at. Everybody lean in. Here's what I know for sure. If you scrap with a train, train's going to win. Well, not that, Jason. Where are you going with this? If you get in front of a train, good chance you're probably dead. But at, worst, at best, if you get in front of a train, the train has power. The train has force. All of us go, yeah. And you hit a train. And you scrap with a train. At best, you're going to be walking with a limp. You're going to be walking with a limp. Why? You scrap with a train. train's got force, more force than you. It's got power. You get hit by a train... There's a really good chance your face is going to look different. It's going to be a few body parts missing. Why? It's got force. It's got power. Let's say I ran back to my grandma's. I was running late. And I looked at her. Why are you running late? Grandma, train hit me. But I'm running just like I'm fine. Like nothing. 
No, it didn't. Trains got too much force and too much power for it to hit you and you be the same. It is the power. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? It's the power of God for salvation. So here's what I know. If you've been hit by the power of God for salvation, you're not the same person. You're not the same person. If you've been hit by the power of God for salvation, you're different. You may not be perfect, but you're different. Right? If you've been hit by the power of salvation, that's what he's saying. This idea that I place, oh man, you know, I'm, a, I'm a believer, and you're no different. Here's what I'm telling you. You are not a believer. You're religious. You're religious. Catholicism doesn't change anybody more than Baptist changes anybody. Jesus and Jesus alone is the power of salvation. And if it hits you, buddy, you're different. Now, i got to stop preaching. One more for you. I'm in a good mood today. One more for you. Here's the question I was raised on, and here's why I know many people who sit in churches are not quite sure. Here's the question I was raised on. If you were standing before God right now, and he looked at you, he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Boy, this was drilled in me. John 3, 16, Romans 3, standing before God. I'm asking you that right now. If you're standing before God right now, he looked at you. Why should I let you into my heaven? Here's where there's confusion. Many people would say, well, you know, I've been a good person. I went to church. I went to mass. I was confirmed. I was sprinkled. I was baptized one time. Right? Well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a moral person. And I feel guilty when I messed up. And I believe in you. And the Bible's awesome, man. David and Goliath, I mean, it's awesome. Right? And I, and I, and I, and I, church, when you're standing before God, this is the center of our faith. Why should I let you into my heaven? Jesus. And I put all my trust, all my faith, and all my hope, I took it off myself, and I placed it on it. Why should you let me in? You shouldn't. I'm with him. Jesus. That's our faith. And that faith is what changes a man. Will you stand with me? Across our campuses, with your head bowed and eyes closed, nobody leaving, we're going to worship a little bit. Can't preach about the gospel and not turn the volume up and worship a little bit, so nobody leaving. I left some time at the end to do this. Across our campuses, two things we're going to do. We're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the gospel. We're going to celebrate Jesus. you got nowhere to be. I've given us time at the end. I'm giving us time at the end, and we're going to worship. But everybody's head bowed and eyes closed. There's some of us that it makes sense. The gospel makes sense. Religion, different than the gospel. There's been confusion and clutter in your head. Now it's clear. So, Jason, I get like the whole time you're talking, okay, you're saying trust, faith, like I can't save myself, and the best I know how that I place it in Christ. Yeah. I, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever, that train, the train of the gospel, the power of the gospel, have you ever encountered that? None of us are perfect. But when we place our faith, we place our trust in Him, the gift of the Holy Spirit, God begins to change us.
that happened to you. Nobody's looking around across our campuses. Campus pastors are on stage. And here in this moment, you're like, Jason, that, that's never happened. Like, I've not made a choice. I've ne- like, it all makes sense, and I need to follow Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray over you and pray for you. If that's you all around this room, all around our campuses, will you just lift your hand really high and say, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, hands everywhere. It makes sense. Yeah. So here's what I want to do. If your hand's up, you want you to look up at me or look up at your campus pastor. Campus pastor, I'm going to invite you to lead those whose hands are raised who are looking at you in a prayer just to confess. Confess with your mouth, Jesus Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised you from the dead. The Bible says you'll be saved. As campus pastors do that, Pastor Joel, these with their hands raised, these who are looking at us, will you lead them in a prayer? Just confessing what's happening in their heart in these moments before we worship. So Lord, we give you thanks that there are people in this room right now that just got hit by the train and they will never be the same. And they're surrounded by people who know exactly how they feel right now. We thank you, Lord. And I want to lead you in this, and there's nothing special about this prayer, but I just want to lead you in this. This is, this is how I did it. I just said, Lord, I see that I'm a sinner separated from you, and I can't do enough to earn the right to stand before a holy God. But you made a way, and you sent your son Jesus to die for me on that cross. So the best way I know how, because you laid your life down for me, I give you mine. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that. If you all want all of you just to look at me for just one moment, you know, one of the things that I think happens when you watch movies about Jesus' crucifixion is there's all this focus on him It's just horrible what he went through, being beaten beyond recognition, crown of thorns on his head, nailed to a cross. And I think sometimes we put so much emphasis on that that we forget there were many innocent Christians who died exactly the same way Jesus did. Before him, hundreds of thousands of innocent Christians were crucified on crosses, lit on fire, many of them. Jesus is the only one who did that for our sins. What separates him and what he went through from anyone else is that he did that for our sins. And now every one of us in this room have the opportunity to stand before a holy God because of the blood of Jesus that covers us. We don't need another reason to worship, another reason to celebrate, no matter how bad your week has been. We don't need another reason to worship him except for one, and that is that Jesus pulled himself up on those nails and said, it is finished.